Hello there. It is Thursday, February 27th, 2020. You're listening to The Cash Flush, a programmer's audio scrapbook by myself, Avdi Grimm, and occasionally some of my friends. Here's what's in the cash this week. This is the first of my book notes for Reactive Design Patterns by Roland Kuhn. Um, a couple of things have stood out so far. Uh, first off, I had not realized the, the relationship between reactive design and the actor model, but apparently they're quite intertwined. Um, so that makes it particularly interesting to me. Um, but I also had not anticipated the scope of what this book is going to be talking about. Um, I had thought of reactive as referring to basically a particular style of flow control. And what I'm finding is that this is about a lot more than that. This is about, um, this is about patterns for, for architecting systems that handle all kinds of things gracefully. Uh, the way they put it, when they talk about, when they talk about what, what they mean by reactive, they say it must react to its users, responsive. It must react to failures and stay available, resilient. It must react to variable load conditions, elastic. And it must react to inputs, message-driven. Um, which is interesting because they're redefining some things. Well, first off, it's tackling all of the, like, pretty much all of the major concerns that we have about useful software. Um, and, and also, they're redefining things that we often think of as properties into reactiveness. And that's really interesting to me. So I'm, I'm looking forward to continuing in this book. I read somewhere that back in the day, we created a desktop in the computer and files and folders because people understood those things and people needed to learn how to work with the computer. That's not true anymore. The computer is reality for people of my kids' generation. It's just normal. They don't need an analogy to the real world. The computer is real. What this means for the software industry is that we're done implementing business processes in software. We did that. We're moving beyond that. We're creating business processes in software now. We're creating the next reality that is native to the people who are learning on the computer to begin with. This is way more powerful and bigger. Go. I've been speaking lately about how the idea of strong opinions loosely held is problematic. Um, and I'm not, not the one to come up with this. Um, I think I was first really convinced of this by Michael Natkin's blog post about it. Um, and so I've been, I've been doing some speaking about it, about how that's a problematic um, way of being in software teams and how expressing opinions in terms of of percentages of surety is is a good counter to it, you know. 
I am 80% sure this is the, the right way to go, or I'm 50% sure that this is a good idea uh, because it, it invites counter opinions and it anchor, anchors us less. But as I think about this more, I think there might be some other, um, some other practices that would help help counter strong opinions loosely held. One of them is just turning it around and instead of focusing on the strength or weakness of opinions, talk about the strength or weakness of our curiosity. Put the focus on curiosity. And the third approach that I can think of is to embrace bias. That is, embrace the concept of bias and the word bias and get comfortable saying, I have a bias towards this solution. Because I think most of the time that's what our opinions are. They're biases. And they're biases that, are, that we're usually born in some kind of experience, in some kind of context. But when we think of them as biases, we think of the fact that they were born from some kind of experience, in some kind of context. And we can engage with that. And we can... We can do away with the, um, the pretend notion that what we have is a rational opinion, which is often not the case. A quick book note from Domain Driven Design. Eric Evans is talking about the ways that we get objects, get references to objects in application code. And so the first way, of course, is that we create an object with new. The second way is traversal. We say some object dot something to get an associated object. And then the third way is through a database query. And he points out that, of course, technically, when we do a database query, assuming our system is using some sort of object relational mapper, Technically, that is object creation because in order, you know, we retrieve data information from the database and then create a new object around it. But it represents an entity that was already in the system. It's actually the middle of the life cycle of that entity. And he uses, he says he likes to use the term reconstitution for this rather than creation. And I think that is a really useful term, and I'm going to start using it more because, yes, that is confusing, the fact that the, the way that we refer to creation, um, and it gets muddled up between actually creating a new entity and creating a new object to represent an existing entity, at least conceptually existing. So reconstitution, useful term. Today, I read a paper by David West. It was talking about how the essential problem in software is keeping a mental model of what the heck is going on in the computer and all the different complicated processes that intertwine and influence each other. I don't think that's the essential problem anymore. We do have high-level languages so that we can cope with that. I think the essential problem of software happens after we put it in production 
The essential problem is that we are creating reality and we change the outer system. And we need to understand the changing interactions between our software and the world. And as the world changes, we need to change our software. And the world constantly changes because our software changes it. And understanding that, it's never complete. It is ongoing and it is a hard problem. The terminology around software complexity is interesting. Uh, we use the word complex a lot um, as versus simple. Uh, we also sometimes use the word complicated, which I think is often used to mean unnecessary complexity. Um, one term that I've been using more and more lately is the term rich, uh, because a lot of, of older software systems are very complex, but it's complex in a way that results from their history, and a lot of that complexity is for a reason, and I think richness kind of um, captures that well. Another interesting term in the same vein is sophistication, sophisticated software. Um, sometimes this is used just as marketing, but I think there's a real place for the term sophistication, and it's similar to richness. It, I think to me it implies Software that over time has learned to handle a lot of edge cases and particularly has learned the nuances um, between certain edge cases that may seem to be similar. Of course, when I say it has learned, I mean that programmers have taught it how to handle these different cases, often in the form of lots of conditionals and lots of extra code. But yeah. I think we need to be careful, or at least have a, a, a rich lexicon of terms for software complexity, because there are different nuances to it. And sometimes it's good to embrace um, the importance of the kind of complexity that your software has. And that's it for the Cash Flush this week. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please subscribe, maybe leave a review. If you love the show, uh, you can support it by supporting me, Avdi Grimm, on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash A-V-D-I-G-R-I-M-M. You can also leave me a message or ask a question for me to address on the show. Just go to anchor.fm or grab the Anchor app for your phone and look up the cash flush. Once again, thanks for listening, and don't forget the flush.